Hi, and thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara-Byrne. Today we look into Soccer Canada's sudden decision to cancel an exhibition game in Vancouver against Iran after a significant backlash. Why weren't organizers more aware of the controversy the match would cause? And did they make the right call in the end? We hear from a Canadian senator who's concerned that language in a new law governing when border services agents can look through our electronic devices is too vague and what impact that could have if it isn't changed. But first, those trying to access Service Canada offices, those hubs we're all sent to, in many areas across the country, face long and frustrating waits. It turns out Ottawa was warned by the union representing staff that this would happen. So why weren't they better prepared and when will the problem be fixed? Well, we begin tonight with a familiar topic, testing our patience while waiting to be served by our government. Service Canada, as you may know, is meant to serve as a single point of access for all of us to the federal government's most used programs, things such as social insurance numbers, EI, Canada Pension Plan, old age security, and passports. Well, the huge demand for the latter, because we all want to travel again, seems to be causing these really long waits. We're seeing people camped out in front of Service Canada offices. It's it's ridiculous. And of course, lots of frustration for those trying to access, uh, especially those trying to seek urgent stuff. So Global BC did a great report last night. John Hua uh, spoke with this uh, woman from the Lower Mainland, Kim Bokler, who said she had waited for 13 hours, cumulatively over three separate attempts to submit Canada Pension Plan death benefits paperwork for her cousin with mobility problems. Here she is explaining what she's had to go through. I arrived at 8.08. I brought a chair. I brought a lunch, brought medication and a book and a scarf, everything I could need. I understand that we've got glitches. This isn't a glitch. This is broken. They've got excuses for pretty much everything. Um, I'm just not buying this one. Well, the reason seems to be they don't have enough staff. Uh, and that could have been foreseen. Apparently there were warnings that they were going to be short-staffed once people wanted to travel again and everyone started heading to those offices. Uh, Employment and Social Deve- Development Canada rather told Global that uh, that the waits for processing times, at least for death benefit applications and so on, continues to exceed standards. They don't mention how long you have to wait to submit the paperwork. Uh, the Prime Minister also said this week that Service Canada is onboarding 500 new passport office workers, so I guess perhaps some relief on the way. Uh, but this lack of preparation really is a bit of a travesty. And of course, employees in there, you can only imagine what kind of reception uh, they're getting or what kind of greetings they're getting for people coming in the door after a seven-hour wait. Um, the Canada Employment and Immigration Union represents Service Canada workers and National Union Vice President Crystal Warner joins me now. Thank you for your time. Oh, thank you very much for having me. Um, we're seeing these these lines um, just pop up just about everywhere. What is the problem from, from your perspective? Well, from the union's perspective, I think uh, this is clearly the fault of the employer at Service Canada in not being proactive um, in staffing up. Uh, to ensure that there would be appropriate levels of staff, that there would th- that those staff that were there would be appropriately and adequately trained, uh, trained for a period of time that that was appropriate. I think also we're having a lack of retention of employees um, because of the long lineups, because of the risks on health and safety, the never-ending stress that workers are experiencing. You know, trying to do their best to provide services to Canadians under these conditions the lack of retention has been a factor as well. So I think there's been a lot of contributing factors to the current situation with the lineups. How is it manifesting itself? I mean, why are we seeing these lines? So, I mean, it was, there was, I think clearly just a lack of pre-planning. We, 
I think most Canadians could have guessed and known that this type of situation would be something that was coming. Um, you know, once the borders opened up and folks are able to travel again, this just seemed obvious to us. So it was really strange that, you know, when we would ask the employer, so what are the staffing levels? You know, how many how many people are we bringing in? Are we doing it pop-up sites? Like, what is the plan? We never got firm answers and it never seemed like there was much of a plan. And so the existing staff um, continued to deal with uh, these these harsh working conditions and that led into the next problem of the lack of retention. So yeah, it's, you know, a lot of people needing public services and, and not enough workers, not enough trained employees and not enough locations to be able to get them in a timely way. I suppose this would be exacerbated by the fact that Service Canada in of itself is supposed to be a hub. So that's where people go, right? That needs to be the one-stop shop for all these services. Absolutely. And if you can think about the impact that that's having on the employees, like the more that the federal government cuts access to public services, so they've closed the doors, you know, before you could go get help at a CRA office with your taxes, you could, you know, walk in and and speak uh, at different locations with the federal government to go get assistance for different public services. More and more, the government is trying to put everything on Service Canada. So like you say, it becomes this one-stop shop. But how can any one person retain all of that knowledge and information? How can someone reasonably be be expected to understand EI legislation, CPP, OAS, passports, and whatever else they throw at them? Like, there is an unrealistic expectation from the government about what one worker (laughs) should be expected uh, to to become an expert on. And so what's the result of that? The result of that is that Canadians are not getting the service that they deserve. The passport issue clearly is the one that exacerbated, but it's having a cascading effect, clearly. Absolutely, it is. And what we're seeing in these lineups that are starting, you know, one in the morning in some places, I've seen people camp out in tents overnight, uh, people showing up three, four in the morning to line up because they need to get their EI, they need to get their CPP and OAS. So we've got lineups of mothers in with babies in strollers that are waiting in the rain, in the sun. Uh, we have seniors, you know, that are have mobility issues and so forth, and they're sitting there waiting in line all day. So what's being done to them is just, it's completely inappropriate and it's disrespectful to the clients that the government is supposed to be serving. Uh, Crystal, have we ever seen anything like this in the past? Because I don't recall ever having trouble getting into a Services Canada office, at least not at this scale. We've never seen anything like this scale. Like the working conditions for our members right now is pitiful. Uh, We have had to have conversations with our members about the right to refuse dangerous work because I think as you can appreciate, if you've been waiting all night to only get told, you know, come back tomorrow, uh, people get upset. And so unfortunately, we've had several instances of violence um, and employees that have been attacked uh, by clients. Um, We even had a gun threat at one of the offices in, in Toronto like we've had really serious threats on the the wellness of the employees. Um, this is a really serious situation that the poor planning of the government has led to putting these employees at risk. And and as you mentioned, retention clearly, you can't afford to be losing people at this point either. No, and I think this myth that federal public sector employees are 
overpaid and, you know, um, this is a thing of the past. <laughs> um, so you have uh, literally entry level positions like clerks in the federal public service, some of the lowest paid employees in the government of Canada, and they are being expected to understand various legislations, how to apply it, how to do decision making on people's EIs and so forth. It is it is completely ridiculous. Like it, it's embarrassing that this is the government of Canada and it's treating its employees in this way. Uh, how how short staffed are you right now, as far as you can tell? It really depends on what offices people are looking at or what parts of the country that they're in. Um, but you know, in a lot of our offices, uh, half the the wickers are are filled. You know, so like in some of the offices, we could easily double um, the the number of staff. It it really just depends where in the country we are. You know, some of the uh, smaller locations, I was just in Northern Ontario and, uh, you know, the numbers are, they're all right. Um, they're, they're, they're mostly adequate, but in major centers, it's ridiculous. Like we, we would need to staff up hugely. And it does take time to train. I mean, the complexity you just described, how long does it take to actually train someone to, to fill those positions? Sometimes I wonder if it's possible for anyone to be so fully trained to understand everything that is expected of these workers. Um, at minimum, I would say a year to be able to get to a point where you're able to adequately and appropriately provide a client with a, a level of service that they would expect from the government of Canada. Uh, so even now, you know, uh, next month, for example, every year in July, the government of Canada sends uh, letters uh, to seniors, letting them know that their their guaranteed income supplement has changed, and so in, inevitably every July we get lineups of seniors at our doors, looking to either dispute or to get an explanation or to get some assistance with this. So what's going to happen next month? Things are already this bad. In July, we're going to see seniors in the sun, outside in these lineups, waiting for assistance, and it's it's unacceptable. Clearly, this this may get worse, which which is a frightening thought. I'm speaking uh, with Crystal Warner, who's the uh, vice president, national vice president uh, for the Canada Employment and Immigration Union. We're talking about these long lineups we've been seeing at Service Canada uh, offices, particularly in major cities across the country, uh, exacerbated in some ways by passport issues, but now cascading all the way down into all sorts of other issues. As you, you may know, Service Canada uh, offices are hubs. We're meant to go to serve. We're sent to Service Canada to solve all kinds of issues or get all kinds of things uh, settled. After this, we'll talk a bit more about just what can be done, what kind of solutions do we need to see in the short term uh, to make sure that these uh, lineups don't get worse before they get better. That's next. I'm speaking with Crystal Warner, she's the Union National Vice President for the Canada Employment and Immigration Union, uh, which represents Service Canada workers. We're talking about these long lineups we've been seeing specifically in major centres uh, at Service Canada offices for people trying to get information about all sorts of things. Passports seems to have been the uh, the initial surge of demand, but it's creating a cascading effect for all kinds of things like employment insurance and, and guaranteed income supplement and so forth. Uh, or, um, and, and as Crystal was mentioning, with uh, in July, it could just get worse before uh, before we see if we don't see any improvement. So, so Crystal, what can be done? What can be done now to try and make sure that this that we don't witness these lineups right through the summer? My priority, of course, with uh, being a representative of the union is the the health and safety of my members. And so I am very concerned about the impact that it's having on current employee wellness. So I think that the employer really needs to sit down 
with its with its employees and have a, a discussion about what support measures need to be in place for people's wellness. Because if you're sitting there, you know, for seven hours a day, eight hours a day, and, and people are coming up to the counter and they're being rude to you all day like that, yeah. that's a lot for any one employee to take. So assuring the the health and safety of its employees is our first priority. Um, we would love to see them obviously staff better, but those new workers are also need to be given appropriate support and mentorship and training. So onboarding folks better and making that a priority as well, instead of just putting somebody on the front lines two days after they've been hired, that's not doing anyone a good service. Uh, so those are those are some things that would need to happen. We would also really like to have more of an ability to be able to allow the employees in the Service Canada Centre to triage the lineups. That would assist in ensuring that the people that are coming in for their EI, their CPP, their OAS, looking for a way to ensure that they're feeding their families that night, those folks need to come to the front of the line. And unfortunately, our requests to triage the lines in these ways have been denied. So we are really urging the federal government to reconsider its approach and to allow the employees the leverage to do what they need to do and the support that they need in order to properly serve Canadians. Because triage has come up in, in a different contexts as well, whether it be uh, immigration at the airport. I mean, the idea of prioritizing certain people when not everyone is getting served in a timely manner seems to be a bit of a no-brainer. Why is it so difficult to have it done? Is it just that they don't trust you to triage? And and that's a question we've been asking is why are we not allowing this and this approach of first come, first serve? What about first most in need? Who are the most vulnerable sectors of society? Those should be the individuals that we are given the privilege of being able to provide a service to first. So why the stubbornness on the part of the employer? Why the bureaucracy and not allowing that flexibility? I could not tell you that would have to be a question for Service Canada. Crystal, I would imagine that over the years, relationships have generally been relatively okay um, with your with the employer. What do you think is different now? What's I mean, if, if you were warning them six months ago that this might be a problem, and I think we're seeing this in other facets of the uh, of of, uh, of the bureaucracy as well. What do you think is true? Why do you think there was no plan, or at least as far as you could tell, why do you think they weren't listening to you? Well, um, we have had a good relationship in the past, and we do continue to to have consultations it seemed in this situation that there was a denial of what was coming and that denial led to an action and so now we find ourselves in this situation and why they couldn't have predicted what the rest of us in Canada seem to be aware of I I couldn't tell you um they're also for us the frustration is the impact on the current employees yeah. like it, it just seems like there's a lack of consideration for the current employees and for their safety uh, for their wellness um, it just it's a disrespect it's a disrespect to their employees and not acknowledging and legitimizing the reality of the situation that we find ourselves in any advice for those who may find themselves waiting in a long line when they step in the door to see that person in front of them and may not get the answer they're looking for Please be kind. Please know that these workers are working their tails off, doing everything that they can to serve Canadians, and and they're doing their best. And and know that you know if you are frustrated, contact your member of parliament, contact Service Canada. Um, but please don't take it out on the workers. Do you expect this to get to get better fast, or are you worried about what's coming up in July with these GIC uh, letters going out and seniors standing in the sun? Is is that is that a legit? Are you, are you legitimately worried we're going to be speaking again in six weeks? 
all we are doing right now is being worried and doing the best that we can to advocate for our members. Um, we have no assurance at this point that things are going to improve. So as we continue to open up, um, as we, you know, remove uh, the number of barriers uh, that folks may have had in getting the services, and as we continue to provide misinformation, you know, what we hear things like the government saying, oh, you know, if you come and you do this application, you're going to get that service in, in two days. All those deadlines are being blown out of the water. So I think the government needs to be honest with Canadians and share with them the reality of the situation. Don't make promises you can't keep. Crystal Warner, thank you so much. For thank you for having tonight. me. Last week on the show, we spoke to Hamed Ismailian. He lost his wife and daughter when uh, Ukrainian Airlines, International Airlines Flight 752 was shot down as it was taking off uh, from Tehran by a surface-to-air missile fired by the Republican Guard. Um, so when he found out that Team Iran had been invited to play Canada in an exhibition match, and he had known about this for weeks, warned the government not to do it, uh, when he found out that uh, Team Iran was coming to play in Vancouver uh, in early June, he was, of course, outraged and said, you know, how could you let this happen? How could you let this regime send its team, which will be used for propaganda purposes, to play in Vancouver in a friendly? Uh, so he was one of the first voices to come out and really say, this should not go ahead. He was calling on Soccer Canada to cancel this. Others have joined in since. Of course, the Prime Minister has been fairly vocal about this uh, over the past little while, saying it certainly wasn't uh, the government's decision. It was Soccer Canada's decision, uh, but that he didn't think it was a very good idea. And then the other day, players, apparently, Players on the team voice some concerns about their opponents. Now, Iran is a good soccer team. They're one of the top 25 ranked teams in the world. So it made sense from a soccer point of view, perhaps, to play Iran for Canada to warm up for the World Cup. But from a political point of view, it was a terrible decision. And today, Soccer Canada canceled the game. Here's Nick Bontis. He's the president of Soccer Canada explaining some of the factors that led to the decision. We had heard from uh, Iranians, you know, Iranian Canadians on both sides of the uh, of the uh, issue in terms of both supporting the match and those against the match. Um, once uh, we coupled that with further information that happened more recently in the last 24 hours, as it pertained to the uncomfortability of our players. That's Canada soccer president Nick Bontis explaining why this match against Iran has now been cancelled. It certainly took long enough. Uh, Hamid Ismailian, though, who I spoke about earlier, he's happy tonight. He welcomed the decision. I think the right decision has been made. I think that's uh, the right thing that they did. And uh, uh, I think that's standing for Canadian values and for standing uh, with uh, solidarity with the families. So... What did Soccer Canada not realize here? Perhaps they didn't realize that politics and sport always go hand in hand. And you should really pay attention to who you're going to play in something like a friendly, because it's an exhibition match, right? You're inviting this team to come to the country to play. You don't have to play them. It's not the World Cup, for instance. Well, joining me now is Simon Darnell. He's an associate professor at the University of Toronto's Faculty of Kinesiology and Physical Education and director of its Center for Sport Policy Studies. Simon, thank you for your time. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So starting with the uh, with the Iran-Canada soccer match uh, here here in BC, in Vancouver, that's now been cancelled, um, were you surprised at the decision? 
Um, a little bit. I mean, I'm not. I'm, I'm not surprised that this became controversial. We don't see sport organizations um, change their minds very often, but I do think there is a bit of a sea change happening around the recognition of sports political implications. We've seen that in the in a number of different um, areas related to uh, to international sport and. You know, I, I think some of these political issues that are coming up against sport are so significant now that sport organizations are having to confront them and having to make some some hard decisions. So, um, yeah, a little bit surprised that the, the decision went one way and now it's been changed. But but overall, we're seeing this trend in international sport, I think. Uh, I mean, soccer has always been political to some extent. Uh, if you think there's even a soccer war way back in the 70s uh, in Central America. Uh, why do you think Soccer Canada wasn't at least awake to the possibility that this could cause uh, some serious backlash? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I think there's still a popular idea that um, sports are apolitical. Certainly, you know, we like to think that when we're watching a game, we're just watching a game. But of course, you're right. Sports have been firmly political um, for for decades. Um, you know, I, I, I think I think uh, Soccer Canada is on the map in a way that they haven't been before, given the success of the um, uh, of the men's national team. Of course, the women's national team has been doing really well for a long time. Right. Um, and I and I think um, they just had to confront the fact that they're getting more recognition. They're getting more acknowledgement of how significant soccer has become in this country. And that comes with, um, you know, more connections to the political implications of something like like welcoming a country like Iran to come and play soccer here. One thing, I mean, uh, you're in Toronto. The uh, the team, of course, uh, Team Canada was widely celebrated in uh, wildly celebrated in Toronto recently. This was going to be the first match back on home turf, so to speak, since they qualified for their first World Cup since 1986. Um, does it taint it a bit? I mean, this was meant to be a big celebration, and instead, it turned into a bit of, a bit of a fiasco for Soccer Canada. Yeah, I don't think it's a great look, um, <clears throat> but I don't think it takes away from the success of those particular players on the field. I mean, this is always the tension that we come up against in these situations. Is this something that's the responsibility of the players to deal with? And I do always feel some um, <clears throat> sympathy for the fact that, that players and, and, and elite athletes get caught in the middle of these political decisions. That doesn't change the fact that sports are firmly political and there's some big political decisions that need to be made around sports. Um, it would, I guess it would have been nicer for Canada, for soccer Canada to have thought through some of these issues before they made the initial decision. But I don't think it takes away from the fact that this group of Canadian soccer players and this team is a really strong team. And that's one that's worth celebrating as, as sports fans in this country. When you look at the the implications of just the circumstances surrounding this one, part of the argument that came up, of course, was that, you know, Iran is playing in the World Cup. Um, Iranian athletes are allowed to participate on the biggest stage in world soccer. So why not invite them to play a friendly in this country? Um, you, you know, but, but clearly when you're inviting a team to play a friendly, which is a exhibition match, essentially, it has, I gather, very different implications from the more structured setups of, say, a FIFA World Cup. Yeah, I think that's a key point. This wasn't a, uh, a match that, that has been um, you know, given to Canada that they must play in, such as what will happen in the World Cup. This is something that they had much more control over. And you know, th there are just some really big geopolitical um, events, um, uh, like the shooting down of, of, of the Ukraine Airlines, um, that have had really significant impact on Canadians. So you know, when those politics get involved, um, then that's when people start to to, uh, to speak out, especially because this is a something that 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 
Soccer Canada had some control over whether to, to host this game or not. Um, should Did it surprise you at all it took them so long? I mean, the Prime Minister spoke out against it. There was sort of a barrage of criticism of this uh, dating back for a few weeks now. Um, it, it did take them quite a while to come to this decision, and they'd already really announced the lineup. I mean, I know this t- same team is playing uh, Curaçao in, uh, as well in, the, in this series of friendlies, uh, but it, did it surprise you at all that it took them so long to make the decision to suddenly say, oh, we've made a mistake? Uh, yeah, in a way, I'm surprised. I'm, I'm surprised that this particular case has received this much attention because it's not like this is the only instance of sport and politics coming up against each other. And there are lots of cases where we tend as a, you know, as a, as a country or just as, as um, sports fans, we tend to turn the, uh, the other way. Like, for example, we could have had these very similar kinds of politics play out around the recent Olympics in Beijing. Lots of human rights issues in China that, that are, are the, the, the demand attention and, and that are wrapped up in the politics of sport. Um, and they didn't seem to play out in the same way. So I think that speaks to um, probably issues of lobbying and who has whose ear behind the scenes in political terms. Um, so it's a fascinating case that this one came to, uh, to light in ways that other issues uh, haven't. I think you mentioned it earlier as well, the idea that this was an invite, that this was a welcome mat, so to speak, in a match that wasn't unlike the Olympics. You know, it wasn't it wasn't all the all or nothing. This was a decision made uh, by by the governing body to invite Iran to play here. Um, So I imagine in that sense, it, it took on a bit of a different tone than say an international tournament where who your opponent is, is not really uh, up to you necessarily or entirely. Yeah, and this is where sports kind of become a proxy for, um, you know, political relationships, uh, 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 geopolitical relationships. I mean, sport has always been one of the ways in which um, national governments have built consent for their for their regimes, built consent for their national brands and their image. And I think that's been happening in this case. And, um, you know, the term that gets used, which I think is accurate, is sports washing, you know, using sports to to promote an image and to and to. Um, gloss over some of the the issues that that um, that, that national governments don't want uh, the international community to pay attention to. So um, yeah, that 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 the fact of the invitation was really significant here because this was a this is a way for for um, countries like Iran to build consent for their regime and to uh, per, you know present a, a positive image when when some of their other actions would would say otherwise. Perhaps in this case, politics did get involved, but I imagine the Iranians won't be so shocked because at the end of the day, this was probably a big political boost for them to have this match going on in Canada with their national team. Yeah, um, you know, it would have been it would have been really significant, I think, for them to have come here and and played. Um, It's hard to know exactly how they feel about the game, about the game being canceled, but, you know, they're also a really talented side, as you mentioned. They're going to be in the World Cup. This is a, this is a, a quality um, country uh, when it comes to producing uh, talented soccer players and talented soccer teams. So, you know, there, there's qu- there's quite a bit on the line, um, and I suspect they're disappointed. But um, you know, I, they'll have other opportunities, I think, to build to build uh, consent for the regime through the use of sport, like like all countries do. I'm speaking with Simon Darnell. He's an associate professor at the U of T's Faculty of Kinesiology and Phys Ed and director of its Center for Sport Policy Studies. We're talking about the decision announced today by Soccer Canada to cancel a friendly uh, against uh, Team Iran set for Vancouver on June the 5th. Uh, quite late in the day, actually, there's been a lot of criticism of this uh, of this choice of opponent uh, for a while now. It was a friendly, meaning they were invited to play here. Uh, there were reports that uh, Iran would receive up to $400,000 for this match, or at least uh, the Soccer Federation there 
there would. Um, but today, the decision made by team uh, by Canada Soccer or Soccer Canada rather uh, to cancel uh, and uh, and then avow in their case uh, to do better in the future when it comes to the choice of opponents. After this, we'll talk a bit more. I mean, this is not the only incident of politics and sports and war colliding in the past bit. And we'll talk a bit about Wimbledon after this, because uh, some controversy there as well over who's not being allowed to play this year. That's after this. I'm speaking with Simon Darnell, he's an associate professor at the U of T's Faculty of Kinesiology and Phys Ed, director of its Center for Sports Policy Studies. We're talking about politics and sports. They always seem to collide at some point. They did collide today for Soccer Canada. They've cancelled a friendly and exhibition uh, World Cup warm-up match set for Vancouver on June the 5th against uh, Team Iran. Lots of backlash in the country, including even from the Prime Minister, uh, about uh, the choice of opponents. So today a decision uh, to cancel the game and uh, to do better in the future, to take into consideration uh, political aspects and other human rights aspects when it comes to choices of opponents for these such things. Um, Simon, you spoke recently about uh, just what's happened at Wimbledon. We know that Wimbledon's been in trouble with the ATP and the WTO, tennis federations, uh, about their decision to exclude Russian and Belarusian players this year over the war in Ukraine. A- another uh, instance of politics and, and sport colliding. What did you make of that decision? Well, I, you know, I was slightly of two minds in that decision. I, I do feel some sympathy again for the athletes who were, um, you know, excluded from Wimbledon um, and have been banned from Wimbledon because it's not uh, their responsibility and it's not their job and it wasn't their decision to um, uh, for, for Russia to in, invade Ukraine, obviously. Um, but you know, it, once we start to recognize that sports are one of the ways in which countries build consent for their for their geopolitical actions, and and given how egregious um, the Russian invasion of Ukraine has been, um, it made sense to me that sport organizations are starting to step up and say, "We're gonna, we're we're not, we can't consent to this, we can't be part of this, we can't condone this by by doing nothing." And one of the few things that um, sport organizations can do is ha- is have a say over who gets to participate uh, in their events. So. You know, it's still unfortunate that this has fallen on the back of individual athletes, but I think it speaks to how significant these political issues are, um, that sport organizations have felt like they've had to do something and had to say something and make these decisions. Certainly Wimbledon's organizers would have imagined, would have looked at both sides of this of this equation and, and, and been caught a bit between a bit of a rock and a hard place, because if they had let them play, one could imagine there would have been uh, a backlash there too. Yeah, definitely. This was not a, uh, a decision with an obvious, uh, you know, with one answer that that um, that's perfect and the other one imperfect. So yes, definitely. If they'd allowed Russians and Belarusians to come and play, there would have faced some some backlash there too. And I think it also speaks. It's important to realize that, you know, there is real political significance and influence of sport organizations when they do speak out on these issues. That you know, the classic example of this is um, how. Uh, uh, Sports-led boycotts helped to end the apartheid regime in South Africa in the 1990s. You know, when when the international sport community got together and said, "We can't support what's happening in your country. We can't condone it. Therefore, we're not going to play against your national teams." That had a real impact on on South Africa's policy to end apartheid. And I think there's a similar thought going on around um, around the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine because of, because of how significant it is. And certainly, Russia is no stranger to using polit- to using sports for political ends. I mean, this is the thing, right? It's not like um, sport and politics that just came together when Russia invaded Ukraine. Russia's been using sport for for uh, decades, for generations. You know, certainly before Putin, but but during the Putin regime as well, has been using sport as a way to build 
um, consent for its uh, for its political interests and for its national interests. And, and and Putin has done that as well. I mean, it's been so egregious in, in Russia that when you look at things like um, their, their state-sponsored doping program. So, you know, sport and politics come together in Russia all the time. And, and I think in that context, it makes sense that the sport community has been part of the resistance to the, to the invasion of, of Ukraine. You brought up the very good example of, of apartheid and how sports organizations uh, rallied against that and not, not necessarily quickly always, but they did, they did indeed rally against it uh, eventually. Uh, but, but the idea, even the Olympic rings are meant to symbolize sport as bringing together uh, countries, despite their differences, despite their geopolitical differences. Uh, is that, is that aspect of sport now being lost a bit or have we moved beyond this idea that sport does unite more than it more than it reflects the regimes behind the athletes well it's always been more of an idea than a reality i think that the olympics would be in the service of peace and in the service of humanity i mean it's one of the ideas that that was that was fundamental to the um to the, the creation of the modern Olympics in 1896 by Pierre de Coubertin. So it's not like it's a new idea, but it always comes up against the fact that, you know, in practice, um, geopolitics often require uh, organizations to take a stand. And so the IOCs and the Olympic movement's reaction has often been to say, well, we're not involved here. We're apolitical. We're, you know, on the sidelines of the politics here. But but when these when these human rights violations are playing out, that's kind of an unsatisfactory position to take. You know, if you're going to be in support of peace, if you're going to be in support of human rights, then sometimes that requires uh, standing up against violence and standing up against human rights abuses. And that the IOC has always had a really difficult uh, time navigating that tension because when they say we're just uh, observers here, um, then they're kind of they're 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 absolving themselves of their responsibility. I would argue. Simon Darnell, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks. Well, how much privacy should we expect when it comes to what's on our devices? And we carry tons of them across the border these days, no doubt, whether you're coming back from somewhere, you've been away. Uh, So how much privacy should we expect when we're dealing with border services agents? It's a legit question. For instance, when I used to travel into China or when I do travel into China, you should expect zero uh, privacy. Anything that you're carrying with you can technically be looked at. Anything, any document, any photo, anything, your Twitter account, anything. Um, but here, I mean, I think we expect uh, to have a little bit more reasonable grounds, quote unquote, not to use legalese. Um, and for a long time in Canada under the Custom Act, I'm hoping I'm getting this right uh, for my next guest, uh, Electric, our electronic devices were treated as stuff. So anything we, as goods really. So anything we had stored on them was fair game until a court, specifically a court in Alberta said it was time for an update. It needed to be a little more clear about what this meant. Catch up with the time, so to speak. So to that end, we have something called bill S seven, which have passed. And I'm quoting here from my next guest will allow officers who feel a quote, reasonable general, general concern. That's the important part here. Reasonable general concern to search through the emails, documents, texts, instant messages, photos, or videos stored on our digital devices to look for evidence that we may have violated customs regulations. So with that term, reasonable general concern, and that's the catch, is that too vague or is it just right? Joining me now is Alberta Independent Senator Paula Simons. And I apologize in advance for dragging you away from the battle from the battle of Alberta for this, but I, I thought I it was an important I topic. I can't look. You know, it's one of those things where I just want to know when the Oilers win, then I'll be happy again. 
<laughs> you know, they they just scored, and and now I'm looking away again. So it's it's just as well. Uh, I find this very stressful. I suppose as an Alberta sure. senator, I'm supposed I'm supposed to cheer equally for the Flames and the Oilers, but of course, but of course, there there are my, there are limits to what can humanly be expected. My grandmother, rest her soul, she used to not watch the Montreal Alouettes because she said every time she watched them, they lost. If she didn't watch them, they won. So she never saw them win, which was <laughs> which was unfortunate. <laughs> so I'm not recommending that. But I digress. Um, thanks so much. I, this I, I read what you'd written about it this week. It's a really fascinating subject because. Uh, the term they brought up here, this reasonable general concern, uh, is, is, is odd. It's an odd one, and you really touched on it. So how did we get here? Well, this is a really good question. Um, you know, our customs rules were written long before we carried our lives in our cell phones and on our laptops. And the prevailing cases were from 1988. You know, so they predated uh the days when we had Uber apps on our phone so that anybody could know wherever we had gone, when we had DoorDash on our phone so anybody could know what we ate, when we had our love letters on our phone, when we had our business dealings on our phones and our laptops. And so up until very recently, there hadn't actually been a threshold that uh, customs officers, border agents had to meet before they could go trolling through your phones and your laptops. And in 2020, Uh, the Alberta Court of Appeal ruled unanimously that that was not a sustainable, tenable test anymore. And the court said, look, you have a lower degree of privacy at the border. Everybody understands that when you cross a border, you don't have the same civil rights that you do when you're walking down the street. But the court said it's not reasonable, given how much of our most intimate personal information is carried on our phones and on our devices that any border agent without probable cause or any cause of any kind can go looking for whatever they want. So they said to the government, you have to come up with a threshold. And it has to be a fair threshold so that it is, you know, enough that we're keeping the border safe, but also that we're safeguarding people's most intimate private messages. So the government were away, and they thought about it, and they came back with a novel legal test, reasonable general concern. This is not a phrase that appears anywhere else in Canadian law. There's no jurisprudence around it. And it's not a test that's been borrowed from another jurisdiction. I mean, sometimes Canadian law will look to someplace like Australia or New Zealand or the United States or England to see, you know, what are, what are they doing in Great Britain? What are they doing in the U.S.? What are they doing in another jurisdiction that's sort of akin to ours with the same common law tradition? But this is a completely original legal test, reasonable general concern. And my reasonable general concern is that that's too vague. I mean, what is a reasonable general concern? No one knows. No border agent knows. No court knows because it's never been tested in Canada. And I I have a twofold concern. One is that I think this is too low a bar. And I think that people could have their privacy invaded without good reason. And I think it's going to create a lot of confusion. I mean, if you're a border services agent and you're told, all right, you should do a search when you have a reasonable general concern, I think that's going to be pretty murky for you to know when you're supposed to do an enhanced search and when you're not. And I think it's going to be 
a nightmare for the courts because the first time people are arrested because of a search carried out under this new protocol, you can, you know, you can bet your buttons that this is going to be litigated from, you know, from one end of the road up the other because no one is going to know what this legal test actually means. It seems, it seems entirely unusual for lawmakers to draft something that has never been seen before. I know you mentioned also the French, the préoccupation générale raisonnable, which is essentially the same word, although préoccupation and concern is slightly different. But yeah, I mean, it, it does seem... You know, yeah. yeah, preoccupation yeah. in English seems even less than a concern, but you know, you can't, you, you, can't, you can't always just sort of uh, find, find the English cognate. I've, I've been right. asking some of my Francophone colleagues, and they say, no, preoccupation is, is probably the right translation. But it is... It's pretty loosey-goosey. It's pretty vague. I mean, it's pretty vague. If I'm a border services agent, I'm thinking, well, reasonable general concern can mean just about anything. Um, you know, if, if, uh, if it's, it's sort of replacing what was already there, which was basically a blanket permission to check through people's stuff. I guess we should point out that, that this is, according to at least the press release announcing this Bill S7, um, is infinitely rare. That It's rare that people have their devices scrolled through and checked yeah, at the it's border. It's not that rare. But not, not that, that rare. rare. Not it's that not rare. That rare. Right. I, mean, I stand corrected. You know, I mean, because they can look for all kinds of things. So say, for example, you've been shopping. Say you've gone on a trip and you've bought some things. Maybe you didn't declare all those things, or maybe you did declare and say that you're, you know, you're going to pay extra duty. They're not just looking for things like child pornography or, you know, terrorist manifestos. They can look for your receipts. They can say, aha, Miss Simons, how many shoes did you actually buy at Nordstrom's <laughs> on your last trip? They can say, you know, hmm, you know, how, how, you know, what are you bringing back uh, from Paris? Not that I've been to Paris for a very long time, but, you know, the, 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 the point is that they can go looking for your banking records. They can go looking to see if you've got electronic receipts for, you know, maybe you bought, uh, you know, audio equipment. Maybe you bought all kinds of things that you didn't quite declare. They can go looking for that, too. So, you know, we think of this as, oh, you know, they're, they're, looking, for, they're looking for bad crime. But suppose you just look twitchy at the border because you need to pee because you've been on the plane a long time and you're sort of, you know, uh, fidgeting a bit. Maybe they sense a reasonable general concern and then they can go looking for things. And I think that we have to be honest in 2022 and say, um, you know, if I, a middle-aged white lady senator, go through the border Maybe no one's going to be reasonably generally concerned about me. What if I'm a young uh, man of color? What if I'm, you know, somebody, uh, you know, in, in the two cases that, uh, that were involved in, in this court decision in Alberta, um, you know, the, one of them, uh, you know, was a, a young gay man. And one of the reasons that they pulled him over for enhanced searching is that they found you know, uh, they found condoms and lube and uh, and other sort of, you know, sex toys in his luggage. And that was the reason that they did an enhanced search. So, you know, if you don't fit neatly into a boring box the way I do, you know, you know, overweight, middle-aged white lady senator, I probably don't look very high risk. But what if, what if you're not me? I'm worried about all the other people who could be captured. 
by this because, you know, of, of frankly, of uh, the kind of stereotypical assumptions people might make if, say, you're a young black man or a young Muslim man. And of course, and if nine eleven was will always be a reminder that you never know when people when profiling starts. You never know yeah. when it's going to, you know. And then if if the laws are too loose or the, the the wording is too vague, you never know how it's going to be used improperly at some point. Which is why we try to have these laws be as specific as possible when we enact them. Um, we'll take well, a quick and, break. And, and, you can, this, oh, yeah, absolutely. Go I'm ahead. Take, take a, a very and, quick break. Uh, you I'll can check, check the score. score. You can check the score. When we come back, I'm going to ask you just a bit more about uh, just what can be done to make sure that the language is 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 uh, a little more a little more clear <laughs> we'll be back I guess this half hour is Alberta Independent Senator Paula Simons, who's trying to keep an eye on the Battle of Alberta. It, 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 by the time we finish this interview, it's going to be like ten ten. I think score... while we while we I think in in the last minute and a half, they between them they scored four goals. It's it's near goals. as I can tell from looking at Twitter. Uh, it, it's yeah. tied at four four. Um, it is. God knows what will happen if we just keep talking. It could be 10 by the time we get ex- off. Exactly. We've been talking about something called Bill S7. There are some, uh, uh, certainly from Paula, but but overall some concerns to just about some very vague language. This is meant really to, I mean, it's a much broader bill than this, but it does allow for border services agencies to really look through all your stuff, your your personal devices. And it's amazing how much stuff we carry, how much about us is on these devices now. And the idea that there has to be some sort of reasonable uh grounds, not again to use that legalese, but some reasonable grounds to be able to look um, through your stuff, uh, to pry, so to speak, in a, in, in a way. Uh, is this, uh, I mean, obviously you've raised concerns about reasonable general concern. This is the term, uh, your reasonable general concerns about that. Um, but where does it go from here? Is, is there been sort of an overall debate now about whether this is too vague? Yes, I mean, we, we had a pretty good debate at second reading in the Senate. And I should explain to people, most bills originate in the House of Commons, and they get debate in the House of Commons, they get committee study in the House of Commons, they get more debate in the House of Commons, and then they're sent to the Senate for sort of a second set of eyes. For reasons that are not precisely clear to me, the government decided to start this bill in the Senate, which is not unheard of, it is unusual. So we're getting this bill without the benefit of it having gone through the House first. And I think that's one of the reasons that it hasn't had a lot of media attention, because, you know, just in general, people don't pay as quite much attention to the Senate as they do to the House of Commons. So we had some pretty vigorous debate at second reading. I certainly wasn't the only senator who raised concerns about this, although I think I was the first uh, to, to speak critically about the bill. Um, so after some, you know, some fairly vigorous debate at second reading, the bill has now gone to committee and it will be studied by the Senate's Standing Senate Committee on National Security and Defense. Um, those hearings will start Monday uh, when the committee will hear from from the minister and from, you know, people from Canada Border Services Agency and, and from, uh, you know, from 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 the government. And then there will be a follow-up series of hearings uh, next Wednesday where they'll hear from uh, people with civil liberties backgrounds and people raising concerns about the bill. Uh, It's going to be pretty quick right now. It's just scheduled for two days of hearings. Uh, To my mind, I would have liked them to hear from some more witnesses. I'd provided a list of some suggested academic witnesses um, who so far are not showing up on the witness list, somewhat to my disappointment. I'm not a member of this particular committee, but any senator has the right to sit in on any committee hearing. 
you don't necessarily have the right to ask a question, although if there's time, I, you know, I might be allowed to do that. So I'm going to be sitting in on Wednesday's hearings in particular because, um, you know, I, I want to watch this debate. And then the committee will have its chance to propose amendments and okay. to, to suggest uh, possible changes to the bill. And then the bill will come back to the Senate for a third reading debate, and then we will send it, whether it has amendments or not, back over to the House of Commons. So, you know, the, the scenario is an interesting one, because if the Senate agrees to amend the bill, and we send the bill back to the House of Commons, and if they don't accept our amendments, or if they have amendments of their own, the bill might end up bouncing back to the Senate again. So, you know, some people have suggested to me that the government may have introduced this in the Senate to save time. Certainly, there's a lot of backlog in the House of Commons. There's been a fair bit of obstruction in a minority parliament. It's not always easy for the government to sort of, you know, move the ball down the field. Um, They haven't been able to score with the alacrity of the Oilers of the Flames. But (laughs) I honestly don't know in the end if it's going to save them any time to bring it through the Senate or if people are sort of going to end up chewing their cabbage twice. Paul Simons, thank you so much. I mean, this is a really interesting topic. Look forward to see where it goes. It's such an important topic to get the language right, because as you mentioned, vague language will always lead to problems, whether it be uh, perceptions of abuse, perceptions of unfairness, uh, ending up back in the courts, which is expensive, of course. Um, So thanks so much for for, uh, catching us up on this one. Well, thank you. And now I'm going to go back and look at the game with my fingers Absolutely. crossed and my toes. <laughs> I might be 9-9 okay. nine, nine by now. <laughs> Paula Simons, uh, independent, senator, independent senator from Alberta, speaking uh, to us tonight from Alberta, uh, talking about Bill S-7. 